0: You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark.
1: It looked like they would sign George Best. He just didn't show up for the press conference. But by 1975, Toy finally got his man. A little bit of help, they say, from Henry Kissinger, working out things with the Brazilian government to uh, allow uh, the cosmos to have their king. And Pele signed in the dotted line. And the rest, as they say, is history. The most successful franchises in Major League Soccer um, are those that really embrace their local identities from the NASL in what we call Cascadia, right, the Pacific Northwest. So you've got the Vancouver Whitecaps, the Seattle Sounders, and the Portland Timbers. They've got the best atmosphere. They've got the most rabid fan base. Wouldn't it make sense if you're having a Super League to have a club representing the super city of New York? Would that then be our opportunity to come back? Well, that's not how we want it, but I'm stuck in a situation in 2021 where I want my team back on the pitch.
0: Hi there. Welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time, David Kilpatrick. He is the historian for the New York Cosmos. Now, as you may know, I'm a massive fan of soccer in the U.S. I loved it so much, I even went out and worked there for a couple of years. And the reason I got into it was when I was a kid, the New York Cosmos were literally the most glamorous side in the world. Pelé, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, all appearing regularly for a side that was in the glamorous city of New York. It was new, it was fresh, it was different, and I was massively into it. But the league they played in went out of business and in its place, MLS grew up. Lots of issues here about the nature of American sport and the nature of American soccer, promotion, relegation, globalisation, branding, all sorts of things at play here in the New York Cosmos story, but they are not dead, that's for sure. And I wanted to explore with David how they can come back to life, if they can come back to life, and what they need to do to come back to life. As I say, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports digital consultant working in content, communications, social media, digital marketing, all that jazz, really. If you need me, contact me via my site, mrrichardclark.com or at mrrichardclark on all social media. If you like this episode, have a look at the back catalogue of sports content strategies. I've spoken to Grant Wall, famous US soccer journalist, and the genesis story of LAFC from a content perspective. So that's all in the back catalogue. But... Without further ado, let's talk glitz glamour, 1970s New York, and the Cosmos story. Then and now, with this man.
1: My name is David Kilpatrick. I'm Professor of English Literature and Sport Management at Mercy College, where I'm also the Program Director of Sport Management, and I'm the Club Historian for the New York Cosmos. Uh, In that role with the New York Cosmos, uh, I am responsible for the... Curation and uh, promotion of the
0: legacy of North American soccer's most fabled club. Well, I'm, I'm a big Cosmos fan. I was when I was a kid. So I don't need to know the basis of the Cosmos story, but my readers and my listeners will. So could you sort of talk about the genesis of the Cosmos? Because they just had their 50th birthday, so they have history indeed yeah
1: we're we're celebrating our golden anniversary in somewhat compromised circumstances but uh it was uh, the tail end of 1970 that uh, the north american soccer league awarded uh new york franchise to uh the gotham soccer club which was the entity that was formed by um atlantic records uh, moguls ahmet and neshwi erdogan and uh business associates of theirs through uh Parent company, Warner Communications, uh, most notably the CEO, Steve Ross. Um, Atlantic Records had been bought out by what became Warner Communications at the time, was Kenny, to try to keep the Erdogans on board. Uh, and again, remember, by 1968, um, Atlantic Records had the likes of Yes, and Led Zeppelin, and uh, eventually got the Rolling Stones on there. So many of Rock and Roll's greats. And of course, Neshwi Erdogan was a seminal figure in, in uh, jazz recordings uh, in the, the decades prior. So the Erdogan brothers had built this uh, record record company up and sold it out. But then the uh, big leagues thought they wanted to try to keep them. When they were asked, well, what could we do to keep you? Apparently, the, the, the brothers Erdogan said, well, uh, we want to own a soccer club. And so Steve Ross said, "Well, let's see what we can do about that." Now I'm not positive about this, but I've been told that Ahmet was a Galatasaray fan and Nesli a Fenerbahce fan. Maybe it could have been the other way around.
0: And their brothers, uh, and their brothers, yeah. and they're, right, yeah, okay.
1: yeah. So that whole the whole Istanbul split. Right? They were interesting
0: the, dining room in their house uh, in the
1: early days, I would think. I should imagine so. So the idea of buying one or the other, or Besiktas, uh, or some other. Uh, alternative wasn't really uh in the cards but um with the blessing of the now parent company they went about uh seeking uh, a, a, a soccer club somewhere in world football and what better place and what better people to host parties uh than the erdogans of course they were rather famous for their uh um, rather debauched uh, rock and roll uh lifestyle um and so they had uh, set up camp with the 1970 world cup in Mexico. Uh, around that time, um, again, the 1966 World Cup had a huge global impact. And uh, in the United States, uh, there was a, a big crowd at Madison Square Garden to, to watch the England-Germany final. And um, there was a, a lot of interest in, in growing the game here. A guy named Bill Cox had had this crazy proto Super League uh in the, the it called the international soccer league it was located in new york where big clubs around the world would come um but uh trying to really professionalize the game really kicked off in 1967 then the year after the world cup and two rival leagues started up the uh npsl and the usa um, within one year these two rival leagues agreed to become partners They merged uh, in 1968 and formed the North American soccer league. The New York Skyliners and New York generals had shared Yankee stadium with the Yankees somehow in 67 in 68, it was just the generals. So the Skyliners just kind of folded up shop, left it for the generals, but the generals only lasted one more season. So uh, by 1970, the North American Soccer League found itself without a flagship franchise in New York, which was not a, a good situation. So um, leaders of the fledgling league, uh, Clive Toy and um, Phil Wisdom set about trying to find investors to, to put a new uh, franchise in, it in New York. They somehow, Phil Wisdom, uh, finangled his way into the Erdogan's party at the World Cup and uh, introduced himself to the Erdogan brothers and uh, got the ball rolling. So by the end of 1970, uh, the franchise was awarded to this group of of, uh, people loosely associated with Atlantic Records and what would become Warner Communications. And um, by the beginning of 1971, the New York Cosmos were christened and began play in 1971 at Yankee Stadium uh, with Gordon Bradley, and Barry Mahey as holdovers from the New York Generals. Uh, they kind of settled into the New York soccer scene, but uh, they, uh, they were brought along or kind of identified along with other top local talent in the New York soccer leagues. And uh, really it was kind of like a, a grassroots all-star team um, initially. Uh, George Ciega, although he was Brazilian, was the first ever signing in 1971 but he was identified at an indoor soccer tournament in White Plains, New York. Um, so again, these this team was really kind of formed right from the grassroots of New York. Um, but all the while, all the while, uh, the club had great ambitions. The very first kit they wore was exactly like that great Brazilian side uh, in 1970, a gold top, blue shorts, white socks. And uh, Clive Toy, who was the founding general manager and kind of rigged a little bit of a contest to, to christen the team. Cosmos is, of course, short for Cosmopolitan. And the idea was the New York Mets, who had won the World Series in 1969, Mets is really just short for Metropolitan. And uh, Clive uh, thought, well, what's bigger than Metropolitan? Nothing bigger than the Cosmos itself. Um, and so uh, the club was launched without any awareness that back in 1890, there had been a cosmos Cosmopolitan Association football club that uh, because the the word was so long, the newspapers in the 1890s uh, would shorten it in their columns to Cosmos. So without any knowledge of that history, um, you could say that the Cosmos were born or reborn. Um, And uh, with that ambition, again, wearing Brazil's kit, Clive Toy set off to try to uh, bring the world's greatest footballer to the world's greatest city, as we like to say. And uh, he pursued Pelé and George Best, um, but especially Pelé with with the, the hopes of um, attracting attention to New York. And, and it was needed because the crowds were rather dismal. And they had the problem of the primary tenant, the Yankees, having the right to uh, pull the field on them when it, there was the, the threat of a sprinkle. And that indeed happened several times in that inaugural season, where fans would even be there at the stadium, only to find out that the Yankees had declared that the weather conditions would tear up the field and make it unplayable for baseball later in the week. So, uh, that caused a lot of problems. And, uh, in 1972, uh, the Cosmos had to hike it out to the suburbs and play at Hofstra. And, uh, they played before very small crowds, um, really struggling for attention in the very crowded New York, uh, entertainment market space. Um, but at last, and in, it looked like they would sign George Best. He just didn't show up for the press conference. Um, but by 1975, Toy finally got his man and the King arrived, a little bit of help they say from Henry Kissinger, uh, working out things with the Brazilian government um, to uh, a- allow uh, the Cosmos to have their King. And Pelé signed in the dotted line and the rest as they say is history. The Cosmos country phenomenon kicked off in earnest.
0: Yeah, and that's the interesting thing I watched um, once upon a time this morning and um, it is presented as Pelé signed and the world's media or the New York media turned up and it all exploded. Was it as straightforward and as simple as that? Not really. Uh, you know, the, his, his debut was a friendly,
1: not a league match, but a friendly against the Dallas Tornado and the star player for the Dallas Tornado was an American uh, named Kyle Rote Jr., The junior was important because his father was a a rather famous player for the New York Football Giants. Uh, So kind of the son of a celebrity in the the team that had captured the hearts and minds when, um, again, remember in the 1950s, the biggest sport here was baseball. American gridiron football really kicked off in the late 1950s with television, in particular around a game um, that went to overtime, the first ever professional game to go to overtime in a championship. Um, at Yankee stadium with the giants and the Colts and Kyle wrote was in that game. So his son, uh, was a professional soccer player and quite a good striker actually. Um, so it was kind of, I think, fitting for America's top soccer player at the time, uh, to be playing for Dallas against the, uh, the Cosmos. Uh, and it was a friendly and it was sold right out. Uh, nobody could get in, um, And uh, it did capture some media attention. But um, again, to be honest, um, it didn't catch on probably the way they would have thought. It wasn't that Yankee Stadium was immediately sold out. Was there a boost in attendance? They weren't even playing at Yankee Stadium yet. And in fact, in, in Pelé's debut, as you see in Once in a Lifetime, they literally had to go out. A guy named Charles Catone, who is essentially like an intern in the office, literally had a bucket of green paint. To try to make the terrible pitch at Downing Stadium uh, on Randall's Island, um, which is sort of positioned in between Manhattan and Queens. Really, still to this day, somewhat difficult place to get to if you've if your kids got a game on a Sunday morning. Uh can be a little bit tricky to get there. So not the most convenient spot. Uh, but for the first game, people were even kind of hanging over the Triborough Bridge to try and catch a glimpse and not quite to the scale of Woodstock, but. You know, there's a lot of people who say they were there that I really don't know (laughs) if they were there. Uh, But, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of a media sensation. And it was more than anything. um, Pillay was a tremendous draw city to city to city. And he took on an ambassadorial role. Uh, He realized that his task was not just to play up to his reputation, he also realized that uh, it wasn't, and, and also that it wasn't just about trying to win a championship. Uh, he also realized that it was a, a the, the greater task was to win the hearts and minds of the American people. And he, you have to remember at the time, again, I was born in 1968, when, when you would fly across the country uh, in the early 1970s, and you'd look out the window, you'd see the landscape dotted with baseball diamonds. Um, now, of course, when you fly across the country and you look out the window, you see soccer pitches everywhere. And so in many ways, um, the project succeeded. But it wasn't until Pelé's third and final season with the Cosmos, 1977. Um, Now, in 1976, they moved back into Yankee Stadium, out of Downing Stadium. Little better digs. But in 1977, they moved into Giant Stadium across the Hudson River, brand new, sparkling stadium. And it became a sensation, especially around Father's Day. Suddenly the the crowds became, they swelled out to the the scale of 70,000 plus and and quite regularly for for several seasons. Um, These massive, massive crowds of at least 35,000 or more um, would show up uh, to to see the cosmos. Now, by this time, he also had quite a cast of characters uh, to join him in. In 76, Giorgio Quinalia had left Lazio, Um, to come to the cosmos Um, in 77 uh, Franz Beckenbauer joined mid-season in 77 uh, although we had the world's greatest sweeper arguably the other greatest sweeper in the world Carlos Alberto Pelé's teammate from that great 1970 game the goal scorer of perhaps the greatest goal in in World Cup finals history Uh, Carlos Alberto joined right in the middle of the great blackout uh, of 77 in the Summer of Sam, as we refer to it, a really hot, crazy summer. Um, And they, they were the first Galacticos. And that was enough to really capture the attention of New Yorkers. New Yorkers want to see the best, whether it's on Broadway.
0: Yeah. And that's I just want to come in there because that's a really interesting point. New York at that time was broke. You know, and there was it was asking for federal help and wasn't getting it. You had the Summer Sam murders. Just watch that show on Netflix. What an interesting time Mm. that was uh, for the city. But also, New York very it is very cosmopolitan. It it is it's one of the world's great cities. It's got an Italian quarter. It has a Chinese quarter. It has a mixture of different nationalities. And it seemed at this period of time, because of the issues. With the with the city there might have been a need for glamour it's no coincidence that studio 40 uh, 54 was uh, was prevalent and uh, very popular at this time and also uh, you had a city in need of glamour a city in need of a diversion and you had a city very open to the what, what is it 14 15 nations that were involved in the in the cosmos squad at this time so do you, do you agree that there was a bit of a sweet spot lots of things converging to make this story pop.
1: The universe aligned, uh, the, the entire cosmos kind of uh, not to be too cosmological, uh, but yeah, the stars aligned, and uh, this fantastic team. Again, try to imagine what that locker room was like, though. Uh, all these little pockets. You know, you had your Englishmen, you had your uh, South Americans, you had your uh, you know Portuguese speakers, Spanish speakers, German speakers, um, and you know, negotiating those personalities can be rather tricky. So there was even a, a, a coaching change mid-season where Gordon Bradley was kind of politely given the boot and Eddie Fermani was kind of snuck in uh, rather uh, nefarious uh, rumors about uh, who really kind of was behind that, that whole deal. Um, Giorgio Okinalia well had, well had, yeah, Giorgio had uh, a relationship with Eddie Fermani back uh, to, to Italy and Fermani was the head coach of the Tampa Bay Rowdies, uh, our great, great arch rival. Um, he decided to just quit mid-season. And uh, a couple of weeks later, suddenly he signed with the Cosmos. Um, that was really one of the indications that Giorgio Canalia had tremendous influence with the within the front office and the ownership group. But uh, Fermani was able to negotiate all those personalities, uh, even in some ways, uh, getting Pelé on board to, um, focus on getting the ball, the, the number 10 should get the ball to the number nine. Uh, Kinalia wore the nine shirt, Pelé wore the 10 shirt and, uh, everything ended up clicking. Uh, the American players like Werner Roth and, and Bobby Smith working together with again, this essentially uh, world all-star team. Um, things finally clicked mid season. Uh, fortunately for them, Uh, It was the North American kind of model where you have to qualify for the playoffs, right? It's not just a matter of finishing top of the table at the end of the regular season, Uh, but they really hit their stride going into the playoffs and uh, they were able to deliver the fairytale ending to Pelé's career so that he could retire as champion. And then his retirement uh, on his last match as as a fully professional footballer on October 1st, 1977, was played in front of a, a rain-drenched, uh, sold-out giant stadium and uh, a worldwide television audience. I'm wondering if maybe you were you're even watching that. Um, I wasn't,
0: no, I wasn't watching I remember him retiring. I wasn't watching that game, no, I wasn't watching yeah.
1: it. In America, it was actually broadcast on tape delay. So I can't say I was watching it live. I was in Memphis, Tennessee at the time, uh, watching it on the tape-delayed broadcast. Uh, so I can't say I was watching it live. Um, but it, it, it was broadcast live uh, around the world and, again, taped away. That was kind of the way things were back then. People forget how often sporting events would be shown later on in the evening. Uh, again, to try to make sure that people would show up and not just watch on TV. <laughs> um, but a, a massive, massive crowd. And the, the football gods uh, cried their tears of joy uh, in honor of Pelé, as they say, as it, as it rained down on him. Uh, he played the first half of the Cosmos, scored on a free kick. And the second half, he played with the only other club he'd ever played for, Santos, and it was a, a tremendous event. But the Cosmos country phenomenon didn't stop there. Right, um, tried to bring in Johan Cruyff the next year. He played a couple games for us. He brought in Dennis Stewart um, from Manchester City, and Vladislav Bogusevich uh, was brought in um, to patrol the midfield. Um, and the, the Cosmos just went from strength to strength and uh, toured the world. Um, famous, famous global tours, Australia, India. I have a program
0: from the Chelsea game. Do you? Yeah, That's- yeah. Because I, I was into it as a kid and I collected programs as a kid. So as a 10-year-old, uh, I'm an Arsenal fan. I grew up, grew up an Arsenal fan. And, um, but I remember buying the Chelsea uh, program from a stall outside Highbury because it was a bit of a collector's item. And um, they showed the cover of it on the documentary. And I thought, yeah, I've got that. And I've got no idea where it is. And I've no idea if it's if if I should sell it and buy crypto or something these days and retire on the back of it. People to buy yeah. that over that little stall by the North Bank
1: on Adderall, Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, that, that, yeah, it was, yeah. Well, it was something like that. It was a bit of an oddity. So it, wow. it, the, the, the same stall holders went to, different London grounds every week. So you could always buy, um, even though the predominant uh, programs would be Arsenal or Arsenal away programs, something like that, especially bit of a collector's items because the Cosmos weren't coming over. But I looked up and I didn't realize they were playing in Jakarta and they were playing all over the place. And that's, and that's interesting because it's a, it's a topic at the moment with uh, US soccer because they're talking about MLS teams having these global brands and it's thrown up with Columbus Crew becoming Columbus Soccer Club or Football Club or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The only, and I've worked in MLS and I love the Colorado Rapids to bits, you know, and I, I desperately want to them, them to do well. But as many people have said, it's important that MLS clubs own their cities before they look outside. Now, I went, to uh, a friendly, I covered a friendly when I was working with Arsenal. We were playing in Helsinki against Manchester City, and I remember this, and I tweeted this because I was walking around Helsinki in the morning, and I was you know walking around having a cup of coffee, just see it, seeing the sights, and I was I was making a note of the uh, of the amount of shirts I saw, and I saw you know a good a good proportion Arsenal. I saw two Man City shirts, and I saw two New York Cosmo shirts.
1: In Helsinki.
0: In Helsinki about eight years ago in pre-season. And I was there thinking, this is a global brand that supersedes uh, its country, to be honest, um, it, it, in, in, in that sense. And and you were, as a club, exporting yourself. I mean, you know, it wasn't just the soccer because the brand of New York Cosmos is glamour, right? It's it's rock stars. It's movie stars. It's glitz. It's glamour. It's, it's big names but you were able to do that. And I remember the Chelsea game when they came over being a bit of a thing, being a bit of a thing in the UK. So, you know, how, how much has the Cosmos brand resonated internationally and how much still does it resonate, even though you're far from the force you were with all due respect? Yeah. You
1: know, um, it's interesting you say that. And and, and, yeah. Yeah. Respect for the Colorado Rapids. What a beautiful stadium there, the, where it's, the way it's kind of framed by the Rocky Mountains. Fabulous. and Best roof rich. in soccer. Best roof in soccer. No doubt. And as, and as a gooner, it's nice to see the <laughs> Arsenal badges up on the training grounds that, or the, the, for the kids all, that surround that stadium. Uh, really, really fantastic atmosphere out there. But um, to be sure, there's, there's no more recognizable North American soccer club still to this day than the New York Cosmos. Little secret about the, the global tours too. Uh, so many of these great players were on these mega contracts, uh, relatively unprecedented in this pre Bosman era, of course, um, if you lived up to uh, six months to the day in the United States, suddenly your income tax would kick in. Um, So, rather conveniently, uh, at around the five month mark that the stadium or that the uh, regular season was uh, structured around, suddenly, boom, you're flying off and you're playing in China, you're playing in Japan, you're playing in India, you're playing in Australia, you're playing in Brazil, Argentina, etc. No club in world football, I don't even think the Arsenal or Manchester United. Uh, can compare with the number of countries that the Cosmos played in. Um, and, again, that's testimony to uh, to the draw of those great players, and, again, the glitz and glamour associated with it. Now, of course, the the, the league that we were playing in uh, folded um, after the 1984 season, and the club essentially went on hiatus. Um, Kinalia's personal assistant, a guy by the name of Peppy Penton, um, Kenalia, in some kind of a, uh, arrangement that's never been all that clear, um, Warner Communications went through a real crisis um, in the early 80s, especially around their investment in video games. Um, they thought, oh, that'll be the new thing. And then suddenly it didn't look so good. In particular, a, a game that was uh, designed to uh, tie in uh, with their film interests, with E.T., the, the game tanked. And uh, apparently there are millions of copies of this E.T. game buried in the desert somewhere out of uh, spite. Oh, yeah, um, i
0: read that story. Yeah, I know that story. Yeah, yeah.
1: But uh, um, Steve Ross, who is the CEO of Warner, w- um, challenges within the shareholders and the board uh, meant a little bit of a loosening of control and would have been this great kind of indulgence for the company, where you know synergy um, is a word that's probably become way too cliched. But the synergies they tried to exploit with the Cosmos as this kind of global front for the the rock bands, the films, right? So you'd have Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger was actually on the board of the Cosmos as yeah, a right. as a uh, international consultant. Um,
0: I, I, suitably I, vague I, I, that is suitably vague
1: well you know uh, uh he, he, i think he was able to bring the sex the drugs and the rock and roll uh some great stories about him uh, uh having a little bit too much fun at giant stadium at the games but um uh and of course he would you know help escort all the players into studio 54 uh
0: whenever they wanted um I'm with the cosmos i'm with the cosmos gets you in right that's you that's bat,
1: what works that <laughs> nice table and uh uh old friend of mine was a bouncer there and that's just the way it was right you didn't have the look you didn't get in um but they walked right in those players walked right in and they were part of that whole scene um and and that was that that phenomenon was was not just a new york one it was a global one um so a lot of people don't even necessarily know um that the, the club went away and then others don't know that the um, the club has essentially come back, to, had come back to compete. Um, so there was a reboot for the club. Uh, the the film Once in a Lifetime that you mentioned a little bit earlier um, kind of kick-started interest in in um, the club. And um, Paul Kemsley, um, who has some uh, associations with uh, uh, Tottenham's Alan Sugar, um, bought the uh, the club from Pepe Petton who had kept the cosmos going and its intellectual property rights on a number of fronts. First of all, uh, he curated all of the material culture of the club, the trophies, the jerseys, uh, the the, the bathrobes, the, the players' jackets. Um, one or two of them even had uh, women's phone numbers still tucked in the pocket. Um, he'd kept all of this stuff, right? The files and files of press releases, uh, videos uh, archived, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so uh, after once in a lifetime, uh, Kemsley bought the club, and uh, rather naively, no, no, no offense intended, but rather naively thought, okay, let's let's put the Cosmos into Major League Soccer. But as you know, uh, working with with the Rapids, that's not really how MLS works. Uh, in fact, Major League Soccer, when it Um, launched in 1996, um, really was launched along the premise of being the anti-Cosmos league. And the Cosmos were kind of seen as the scapegoat uh, for the failures or excesses of the North American Soccer League in the 70s and 80s, which I think is harsh, unfair, and uh, misguided, quite frankly. Um, I think the responsibility for the league really was Overexpansion and a closed league structure, too much like the North American model, that it would allow franchises to relocate, that would allow um, franchises to come and go by the whims of their ownership groups. Uh, so, um, for instance, even though I was a New Yorker living in Memphis in the 19, I was born and raised in New York, um, but I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, in the late 1970s. So. Um, I was blessed to uh, have as coaches the likes of Bobby Thompson from Wolves, Charlie Cook from Chelsea. They were there in, in Memphis, but uh, the the Rogues started in 1978, and uh, by 1980, 1980 was their last season, and they moved to Calgary, Alberta, and became the Calgary Boomers. That kind of thing was happening left and right. Um, it's inconceivable. It's sort of like the, the you know Wimbledon becoming MK Dons or um, those rare exceptions of clubs being treated as franchises. Um, and this wasn't really out of the norm for North American sports at the time, necessarily. Um, basketball was not as established as it is now. Um, again, while living in Memphis over that same three year span, the 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 basketball, the professional basketball team uh, rebranded three times in three years. They went from being the Memphis Pros to the Memphis Tams to the Memphis Sounds and then when the league merged with the nba the memphis team folded there was a, a memphis there's a memphis grizzlies team in the nba now but they relocated from vancouver when i was a kid the memphis grizzlies were a professional football team so franchises coming and go com- coming and going um is about as american as apple pie but um that's not good for soccer and that's not the way soccer is structured. So. Um, Kimsley rather naively thought well okay I own the Cosmos now the Cosmos need to be in the top league that's MLS okay Um, hey Commissioner Garber uh, hey MLS here we are now there was already a franchise in the New York metropolitan area in 1996 they were launched as the New York New Jersey Metro Stars playing in Giant Stadium with the aforementioned Eddie Fermani as their their first coach Um, so it was sort of like the Cosmos back but Rather than with the cool name Cosmos, you had the rather clunky New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. Um, but for many of us, we thought that that was a little bit of a placeholder. In fact, the first player signed for the Metros um, was Tab Ramos, who is a draft pick of the Cosmos. We have this draft, uh, college draft in, in North American sport. And uh, Tab Ramos was uh, one of the last draft picks uh, for the Cosmos. And so he was the first player signed to the Metro Stars. He even had the Cosmos coach, played at the Cosmos Stadium. Um, Just kind of felt at the time like it was inevitable that eventually that team would be named the Cosmos. Um, But Penton had the, the intellectual property rights, owned the club, ran Cosmos soccer clubs, and would sue anybody who dared infringe upon the copyright and trademark of the New York Cosmos name. Major League Soccer then, when it launched, though, was as a single entity. The Metro Stars were operated by, not owned correctly speaking, but operated by Metro Media, right? A media conglomerate whose headquarters was across the road from Giant Stadium. Um, but Major League Soccer is a single entity. So you don't have owners and ownership groups. You have operator investors who buy into the league. And then in return, they have the, the uh, as investors, they have the rights to operate particular franchises. So it's a very complex structure that's designed to keep costs down. The justification at the time was, we don't want spending to go out of control the way it did. And that was the beginning of really scapegoating the Cosmos with the, again, the Neo Galactic or the, uh, the Proto Galacticos, I think you could say. Um, you know, These great players, other franchises around the NASL had tried to mimic the Cosmos, uh, Cruyff played one match for us, a giant stadium against the FIFA World All Stars. You played that match at Stamford Bridge that you were at, or that you've got the program for, right? But um, Cruyff eventually um, joined Aztec, the yeah. Los Angeles Aztecs, yeah. the Aztec, yeah. and then a year later joined the Washington Dips. What a great name, the Dips. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these ownership groups, you know, you'd have used car dealers saying, "Oh, let's get in on this," and no idea um, the investment required to launch a sustainable soccer club. So uh, the league arguably overexpanded, that's that. That's one dominant narrative of it. A lot of people say, well, the, the league expanded. I don't think the problem was the league expansion so much as the people that were doing the expanding. It was the ownership groups in the structure. And you know, there are just too many cities in the United States to only have one division but we didn't have an open system with promotion and relegation, the way the game is structured the rest of the world. Uh, but Major League Soccer, when it launched, they wanted to try to keep the cost down. In 2002, when the players uh, tried to sue for antitrust, the Cosmos were referred to in defense of MLS as saying, oh, we gotta got to keep the costs down. We have to keep the costs down uh, to sustain the game. There might have been some good reason for that in 1995, 1996, when they launched. Major League Soccer launched as a condition Um, for FIFA awarding the 1994 World Cup to the United States. There wasn't really a proper, fully professional uh, first division in the United States. Indoor soccer had kind of filled that void. It it had taken some time. So um, they put this structure together. In many ways, the Cosmos were the the excuse for keeping the structure um, the way it is. So when Kemsley um, bought the club, he rather naively thought that okay, we'll just go in. And he was told, well, okay, it'll cost you $80 million. By the way, your intellectual property rights will become owned by the league. You will no longer own it. So he had just paid these millions, right? Um, Kemsley was spending a lot on this project, spending, 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 spending on this project, um, trying to do it right by the Cosmos name in his defense, right? Um, billboards at Times Square, the Cosmos are back, Filet there, signing autographs at Times Square, signing Cosmos Ball. Canton was
0: involved as well, wasn't
1: he? Canton was involved at the yeah. time too, uh referring to it quite rightly as an art project. Right. And uh which which in many ways it is. Um but quickly Kemsley was going through way too much money on this project um and was essentially bought out um, by another uh, group of investors who then were still at the table with Major League Soccer, but around this time, uh, the a, a revived North American Soccer League, uh, right? Kind of embracing the identity of the former league, um, had launched up with uh my good friend David Downs as as the commissioner. And so they were also negotiating with this North American Soccer League to put a, a club in that league. But the new ownership group, when they understood the price tag of $80 million to become operator investors. So they'd just become owners of the New York Cosmos. Then they would be paying $80 million on top of that to hand their ownership group over to the league. And they would no longer own the intellectual property rights. And then they would be constrained by the salary cap. And again, in the single entity, with the exception of what's known as designated players or the Beckham rule, as they call it.
0: Which is a way round to get the stars in, isn't it? It's a way round to get the stars in. So you have that little sprinkle of stardust. Exactly. Exactly. So while I, obviously you're, you're, you're the expert, but I have worked in MLS. So I see, I agree obviously with the vast majority of what you're saying, but certainly the early years of MLS, they were taking that. They did have um, no ties. They did have the, the halfway line um, called a shootout, a shootout. And they did, you know, they were still affected by the NASL, the need to have that sprinkle of startups. And what we're seeing now the, the DP rule was in, introduced to get Beckham in, and that was crucial for create credibility. Yeah. And now, what's happening is they're trying to double down on, on credibility. All the clubs that are star- starting up are United, City, they're football clubs, they're not even soccer clubs now. Gone are the days of the Kansas City Whiz and the Dallas Burn. You know, those names have gone. So, clubs yeah. are even rebranding. And, you know, the, if the crew turn into FC, uh, Columbus FC, that's another one. I, r- I wrote a blog about this. So, it's interesting. Yeah, there was that spike, that stardust necessary, and there has been. When LA came to play at Colorado, we had loads of fans turn up in Liverpool shirts because Gerald was playing. Oh, that's cool, I get it, I understand it, it's, it's no problem. But Colorado Rapids weren't enough to bring those people in. That's right. You needed something else. And may I always think MLS is, has been in the sort of teenage years wanting to leave home in the last five years, wanting to stand up, wants their own key to the door and, and, it, and its own culture and its own development, which I perfectly understand. But at the same time, you don't want to do away with the, with the history of the old NASL because it was great. It was, it well, was what it was. The,
1: the most successful franchises in North American soccer or excuse me, in Major League soccer um, are those that really embraced their local identities from the NASL. In what we call cascadia right the pacific northwest so you've got the vancouver whitecaps the seattle sounders and the portland timbers they've got the best atmosphere they've got the most rabid fan bases right um and that was done against the the wishes of uh, some people in the mls hierarchy right um so yeah you see these rebrandings to um, now, what is perceived as more globally authentic names, right? So the Kansas, the, the, the terribly named Kansas City Wiz, who quickly rebranded to Kansas City Wizards, mm-hmm. because people were really having to go with the name, the Wiz, right? They they became Sporting Kansas City, right? The furor over the past week or two, uh, the, the leaked news that the Columbus Crew um, were going to rebrand as Columbus SC, right? So more and more what would be considered globally authentic names rather artificially thrown onto these uh, entities. In in the case of Columbus and Kansas City, these were founding franchises of Major League Soccer back in 1996. Um, The Metro Stars, of course, became Red Bull New York. Um, So Kemsley, when he had bought the club or the Cosmos, thought, okay, um, now New York can have a second team Uh, in the MLS. And um, when he was bought out, the investors said, we're not, if we're going to spend $80 million, we want that to be on a new stadium. If we're going to spend $80 million, we want that to be on uh, the stadium and and great players again. And we don't want to be hampered by the single entity status where the players that that are wearing our badge are actually signed to the league, not by us. Uh, We want to be able to control our own destiny. And the relaunched, if you will, or the the NASL 2.0 actually provided a league structure that suited those ambitions, or so it seemed. So in 2013, the New York Cosmos uh, returned to competitive play, playing against the revived Fort Lauderdale Strikers, one of our rivals from the past. And there was a revived Tampa Bay Rowdies in that league. Joe Cole from Chelsea, of course, played, played for Tampa Bay Rowdies.
0: Um, and you and had it, Raul and Senna. Was did they come yes, in at that
1: time? Had, yep, Raul joined us, um, and uh, we had Marcus Senna and again, uh, operating on on a, a similar kind of carbon copy, if you will. Um, and toward the world, we uh, were the first team from the United States to get back to Cuba once President Obama lifted things. That was an amazing experience. We had Pelé on the plane with, with us. We had Carmelo Anthony, who was with the New York Knicks. Uh, on the plane with us. And uh, when we arrived in Havana, boy, it was the full rock star experience. I was the first one off the plane, believe it or not. So I'm the first, and I was the first one through customs, and Pele was right behind me. So I come off this plane, and there's, you know, I had thousands of people, and there's little old beer bellied me.
0: And then there's Pele. And then You know what? You know, I'll tell you a little story. When, when I, when I when I also went to China and places like that, we used to walk in to the hotels with, with the players and the player would come in and they'd go, ray. Hey! another player would come in. They'll go, ray. Hey! then I'd walk behind. And they'd go. Oh. <laughs> 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 it's like, I, I know, I know I, I'm disappointed too. Let, let's be honest. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's interesting with, with the cosmos, right? Because the legacy of the cosmos, you won battles for the sport of soccer in the US. You know, they talk about Dick Young, the Daily News columnist being, you know, the old grizzled guy who wasn't interested in soccer and it was horrible, it was a foreigner sport, we're into baseball, blah, blah, blah. Tommy Kenzie sport,
1: he used to say, yeah. Right.
0: He got won over. Also, I think it was very poignant that of course, come 1990, what's massively important in the growth of soccer in the US is the US getting to the World Cup. That's when, you know, as, as much as I love M- MLS, Um, it it doesn't resonate nationally on a weekly basis. But what is absolutely for sure is the US men's national team and the women's national team getting to their respective World Cups resonates hugely, and they draw a parallel in the documentary, and I think it's fair enough, between the Cosmos ending and NASL ending in the sort of mid-80s and those uh, players that were in the 90, 94, 98 World Cup team being influenced, yeah. being energized by them. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll, I'll recommend another uh, documentary film for you. I,
1: I don't know how many times I've watched uh, Once in a Lifetime and I can't get enough of it still, but the documentary Soccer Town USA um, really identifies at, at the heart of that team uh, that qualified for for the 1990 World Cup in, in Italy and then um, you know, represented the U.S. in 94, three guys from the same town, right? Tony Miola, John Harks, and Tab Ramos. I already mentioned Tab Ramos was a, a draft pick of the Cosmos. They grew up basically in the shadow of Giant Stadium. Um, Tony Miola, our goalkeeper for the United States, was a ball boy. So was John Harks, the midfielder, um, the, the the first American to score at Wembley, by the way.
0: His arc, right? I was there when he scored. Were you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a League Cup final. The League Cup yeah. final ninety three. Yeah, I was there. I was there. So you know they were Cosmos fans. That that you know that that's how they grew up. This the Cosmos, as I say, they have A resonance over here, certainly for people of of my age, and obviously this is a podcast. It's it's on video, but I'm wearing a Cosmos top uh, because I have a Cosmos top. When I also went over to New York, we um we we did some work with the Cosmos community coaches, and they gave us some merch and stuff. So I I was I nabbed that quickly. I I swapped a few things to get the Cosmos stuff anyway. But um there is always looking down on the standard of U.S. soccer. Yeah, it's still there now. It's still happening. The interesting point for me. Um, was Steve Hunt, of course, a player who came, played seven games for Aston Villa, then uh, was sold to the Cosmos in order to put a roof on the Witten End stand at Villa Park, right? And he moved over, he'd been married a month and he moved over. Now, he was a jobbing midfielder, but he came out of the top flight of English football and he went back into the top flight of English football. On the other side he played for Coventry, West Brom, Aston Villa. Now, and he also played for England a few times. Now, he was, you know, I'm not going to say he's the greatest player in the world, but I always look even with the standards of MLS, I look at okay, where have those players come out of the English league and how how high up are they in the rankings of MLS players? And Steve Hunt was a a jobbing top flight English player, but he was a top flight English player and he went to the Cosmos and back again. Pelé and Beckenbauer were, were towards the end of their careers. Alberto towards the end of his career as well. But Steve Hunt is the barometer for me. Right.
1: And you know, by the way, first of all, he's—you he, won't find a more passionate Springsteen fan than Steve in the entire state of New Jersey, right? Uh, so he still fly—he flies over to to see the boss uh, whenever he can. But um, yeah, he scored the cheekiest goal you'll ever see too, um, to break the deadlock in the the championship game in '77. Uh, so he'll always be, you know. Uh, always be famous for, for, you know, there was a, a back pass to the Seattle goalkeeper Ch- uh, Chersky and he wasn't aware that hunt was right there, but you know, phenomenal player. And, um, and, and yeah, the, the standard of play was out, was was extremely high. And this again gets to the issue about, you know, just because you call yourself major league doesn't necessarily mean you are um, what makes a truly major league um, is that you attract the top talent in the world right? So Major League Baseball has the best players in the world. The NBA has the best basketball players in the world. The NFL, well, there isn't really much competition in that regard. The National Hockey League has the best hockey players in the world, even better than the KHL, right? Um, This is what Americans expect from their major leagues. And that's obviously not the case for Major League Soccer. So the commissioner, Don Garber, a few years ago was even kind of moaning about the uh, accessibility of top flight european football um i was president of arsenal america uh and have been involved in in that supporters club for years when i when i moved to london in 1994 i hadn't been to a professional soccer match in a decade right the nasl stopped in in, there so i was actually my first match at Highbury was the the new year's eve that johnny jensen scored oh right yeah 3-1 yeah um which again was a loss to qbr but boy was i hooked i hadn't been to a game in a decade, and, and I absolutely loved it. To be honest, in those George Graham days of one nil to the Arsenal, I'd seen better football played when I was a kid watching the Cosmos. Yes, it was on artificial turf, but even the artificial turf suited the playing style. And that you weren't, you know, and again, people forget, you know, with the Premier League now, even, even then in the early nineties, you know, you, you had to have your 11 and your seven be the fast players because you know, it was along the wings that was the only area that, that, that there was still grass. There'd be so much mud in the middle, right? The condition of the pitches now um, has evolved so much so that you know, you know, the beautiful carpet at Ashburton Grove now, um, and even the, you know, the way Highbury's pitch was maintained before it closed, right? But back in the, in the early 90s, you know, mid-season, you were playing on sloppy, muddy, soupy pitches um, and you were lumping the ball forward. And that was something I didn't really expect. So what I really fell in love with at Highbury was the the supporters' culture. wasn't necessarily the style of play. Now, of course, Arsene Wenger changed all of that. And the Premier League money raised the standard of the pitches and things like that. But um, people forget that the North American Soccer League was able to catch on for a while because the world's greatest players were coming here. Again, pre-Bosman, pre-Bosman. And now... And now, American kids, to your point, right? I just dropped my daughter off to her last day of of school as a graduating senior earlier this morning. Kids wearing football tops, right? You see your Real Madrid, your Barcelona, um, your Arsenal kit. Um, You even see the occasional Glasgow Rangers uh, kit in town here uh, in Dobbs Ferry, New York, right? Just outside, of about 15 minutes north of of Manhattan. 15 miles, maybe it depends on how fast you're driving or whether you take the train, right? But you know, a northern suburb of, of uh, New York City, and you see kits from all around the world. What you don't see much of, no offense, are you don't see too many NYCFC or Red Bull kits. You're more likely to see a Man City kit than an NYCFC kit. That's just reality.
0: Well, and that's and that's the I've I've maintained that. The enthusiasm that I saw for soccer in America means it will be a massive sport in that country. I, it, it, but it is open to question whether MLS will be that major league for all sorts of reasons. This was going to bring me back to one of my points. The MLS is now, its TV numbers aren't what it wants. Let's, let's say I that. Now that was also true of what happened to the NASL and the Cosmos. The TV numbers weren't right uh, weren't what they wanted abc went for it in a big way it didn't work and they pulled the plug very quickly it was a very interesting point the cosmos tv guy made on the documentary saying that he'd have done it a different way he'd have approached the 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 presentation of soccer is a little bit more highlights a little bit more clips which actually is a more modern way to do content right um yeah. but but is that the the challenge that existed in the cosmos nasl time that exists now that the us soccer itself apart from the world cups has not worked itself out it hasn't worked out how to make itself a spectacular sport that gets an audience on tv and that's fundamental for the success of the sport yeah every summer you know
1: obviously not this past year um, and and likely not this summer but when we're not in a pandemic, um, there are crowds of 60, 70,000 for soccer matches in the United States. It just happens to be, though, that it's the likes of Manchester United versus Real Madrid, or it's Liverpool versus uh, Bayern Munich, or something along those lines, right? Um, the, the mega clubs, if you will, indeed, the, the dozen that were going to comprise the European Super League, Quite frankly, my reaction to the proposed European Super League was intense ambivalence. Ah, but from a Cosmos perspective, right, we're on hiatus right now. The, the Cosmos won the revived North American Soccer League our first season back, 2013. Um, we, we didn't win the league in 2014, but in 2015 and 2016, we won the league back to back. When the NASL was designated as the second division here. But without promotion and relegation, without an open system, winning the second division makes you the second division champion. It doesn't earn you promotion. So, you know, whenever I go anywhere around the world, the first question I always get is, when are you going to be promoted into the MLS? It simply doesn't work that way. And then, and then United States soccer decided to revoke the second division uh, sanctioning for the North American Soccer League. So suddenly our second division status, which frustrated us, right? Um, and, and in as much as we were kind of the, the Goliath uh, back in the day, now we're very much the David. Advocating not in a selfish way for, um, for ourselves to be at the top, but um, advocating for an open system, you know, more aligned with FIFA's uh, statute on sporting integrity of which there are two notable exceptions, Australia and of course the United States. And um, so here we are winning the second division a couple of years in a row. And then we won it uh, yet again, uh, right? So we, we, we win the win, win the uh, league three times and suddenly the league loses its second division sanctioning and the league goes in hiatus. And this year the Cosmos are competing in court. Now I have to tell you though, um, All along, we thought, eventually, with the globalization of sport, eventually, some kind of a global Super League has to happen. This is something we talked within the office for years and years and years. And we also know that with the single entity structure of Major League Soccer, it is impossible for a franchise which does not own its intellectual property rights, right? It's impossible for a Major League Soccer franchise to leave MLS and join any such structure. We wondered, could this Super League be our opportunity? It wasn't named the ESL. It was named the Super League, right? Um, Now, we're owned currently by Rocco Camisa, who also owns Fiorentina. And his focus there is trying to avoid relegation from Serie A. But um, whether it would be Rocco or another investor group, um, wouldn't it make sense if you're having a Super League to have a, a club representing the super city of New York? And again, would that then be our opportunity to come back? Well, that's not how we want it. That's not how we want it. But I'm stuck in a situation in 2021 where I want my team back on the pitch. I want my team back on the pitch. So I was against a a closed system that doesn't allow for the, the pure meritocracy of competition. But... You know, again, I was intensely ambivalent about the idea of a super league because I did think it would instantly revitalize the cosmos uh, in a way that would make us again um, globally prominent.
0: Um, so I, I still think that we have that potential. That hadn't crossed my mind actually. That hadn't crossed my mind because I know obviously you were doing. I, I came to the Cosmos head of offices. I I visited. Um, uh, I had a, a, a connection there, so I came to your offices about when they are in Soho, I yeah. think it was. Um, and it was all 100%. brick walls. I remember being brick walls and things like that. So yeah. I had a little look around. As I say, I'm a, I'm a Cosmos devotee. And that must have been 10 years ago, best part of 10 years ago, I would think. And they are talking a good game then. That was probably when Paul Kemsley was, was starting to get involved. It's always got a little bit legal. And I know, obviously, USL has usurped NASL. And now you've been involved in NISA, but you're not competing at the moment in Nisa, which is a different league. Yeah. And it just seems, as you've said, the Cosmos are a big game, a big a big noise, a big brand as well, potentially valuable brand, that doesn't have a home, that doesn't have a home to play football. And there doesn't seem to be a way out of it, given the way MLS does its business doesn't fit with, the, with what you want to do. And, of course, the other thing that happened with getting into MLS, of course, Citigroup came in and won a franchise to to be New York City FC. So there was that issue going on. You're smirking at at me. (laughs) So we can't libel anyone for a smirk. I'm rather certain Sheik Mansour would have
1: taken uh, a spot in Miami just as well as New York. I'm rather sure of that, right? But, um, you know, they were kind of fast-tracked in ways that other um, prospective expansion sites were not in that um, other cities that are desperate to try to get in on this thing, right? Are now the expansion fees have gone beyond the 80 million. Supposedly Citigroup paid a hundred million, not the 80. But the timing of this was really terrible, right? For us, right? So we're about to come back on the pitch and all of a sudden Major League Soccer announces, ah, we've got another team in New York, New York City FC. All right. Um, And to say that it hurt us, would be a a, a gross understatement. The American sports fan, again, doesn't care for something being second rate. They want what's major. And here we have in the North American sports, a major league and minor league structure with no promotion or relegation. So um, minor league sports do not get attention. They just don't. Um, And so the rhetoric surrounding major league soccer, it's, can be really powerfully employed impl- for a domestic audience. They talk major league versus minor league. For a more global audience, then they'll talk first and second division without ever acknowledging that there's no promotion and relegation between them. And one could reasonably argue that first, second, third divisions mean absolutely nothing if it's not a proper pyramid with movement between them, right? They're just designations. Um, one of the standards uh, that the the league was not able to, to comply with that resulted in the loss of sanctioning was the idea of every stadium had to have 15,000 seats. There had to be a team in three time zones, three times, three times. So some of these things were just kind of arbitrary and many teams in different leagues could never comply with that. How many teams that compete in the Europa League? Maybe they maybe they'll have to play their Europa League games at a a national stadium, right? If if say um, Lorna have all that money coming in in Belfast, right? But if they qualify for the Europa League, they're going to have to play at Linfield's Windsor Park because Windsor Park has eighteen thousand. But but you know under that model, right? Only Linfield could ever be in that league, right? Um, So. If you, if you kind of use that type of standard, there's other standards about the, the wealth of the owners and things like this, right? Um, so the idea of a supporters trust or an, a, a, a fan owned initiative can never right now under the current structure ever rise to the top. It's inconceivable. Um, so yeah, we're very much the, uh, the uh, square peg to the round hole of major league soccer and we're essentially homeless. Um, it wouldn't be right for the Cosmos to be playing in some Sunday amateur league. It just wouldn't be a right. As you said, you know, we're about the glitz and the glamour. We need to be top, top, a top club. Um, and there's no opportunity to be
0: top. The very structure of Major League Soccer is to try to prevent that. So, so. what's the future? What is, what is the future? Because at the moment you're not playing, you can't advance – you know, the new incarnation of the club has rattled round in different leagues, but not, but never the top league. This doesn't fit with the, with the cosmos story. So what is your future? Well, as we speak, while we don't have a team competing on the pitch, we are competing,
1: but unfortunately it's in the court of law.
0: Over what? Uh, What's the issue?
1: Uh, the, uh, there's antitrust litigation against the United States soccer and major league soccer. Oh, right. Um, where we're uh, trying to uh, again, this is a consequence of the revocation of the second division status. The United States Soccer said, "You're no longer a second division. If you want to, uh, if you want to apply for third division, go ahead." Well, you know, we had a sponsorship from Emirates um, at the time, right? So you had Real Madrid, Arsenal, Cosmos, right? Um, that was that was tough enough when you were labeled second division but at least we had first division aspirations suddenly, you know, if, if you were to be competing in a third division or something like that, which NISA right now is currently sanctioned as a third division, each one of these leagues have to reapply every year, every year. And sometimes waivers are given major league soccer, never could have complied with it. Right. The the, the hunt family owned a few franchises at one time, the Anschluss, the Anschutz group owned the galaxy and the Metro stars at the same time before the metros were sold to Red Bull. So Again, the, the the standards change year to year to year, and it just keeps serving the hegemony of, of major league soccer, this hand this handful of billionaires, some of whom, of course, were involved with these super leagues, right? The the North American influence on the super league is something that's well documented. Um so in many ways, that's sort of what we're up against. Now again, the net worth of Rocco Camiso, the owner of the Cosmos, he, he's not he's not wanting for anything. He's right there. Uh, with the Stan Krokes of the world. So it's it's not that he doesn't have the ability to do whatever, but again, what is he to do with it? Um, and, you know, is a league um, structure appropriate for us? So right now, especially with COVID, um, his focus is, is much more on Fiorentina right now, but he's still spending millions of dollars on this court case. That's not just for the Cosmos. It's really for the sake of, of American soccer to try to get the global game Aligned with the way it's structured
0: globally, which seems to make sense, doesn't it? And just finally, though, if you can get a team on the pitch in a viable league, is the fan base still there? Because we're roughly the same age, right? I think you're a year older than me. Um, Those fans, I sense, are still out there.
1: They are. They're out there and you know, uh, the top you're wearing, I have that top too. And uh, it's a conversation starter, isn't it? Um, oh, the Cosmos. I used to go see them. Or, oh, my dad loved them. You know? But again, it has to be done right. It has to be done right. Or you don't do it, right? Um, you, you, you have to have top talent. You have to be trying to be top. Because that's part of our myth. That's part of our mystique that can't be compromised. If you compromise that, then, then you uh, are undervaluing and demeaning. It. So that's the unfortunate reality. Um, again, if you look uh, what, what, what they pulled, uh, pulled off up in Scotland, you know, for Rangers dropping all the way down uh, and under, you know, proper sporting integrity climbed all the way back. We don't have that ladder to climb. So um, I do th- think, and I'm, perhaps naive and optimistic in that regard. I think when you really look at the biggest picture of all, you know, soccer is not new in America. That that is a narrative that serves the people that are in control right now. The first modern football was invented by Charles Goodyear. And that was first sold at Charles Goodyear's brother-in-law's shop in lower Manhattan. There were were people playing football. The earliest football club in in New York was the St. George's Football Club. And the St. George's Cricket Club, which which housed them, uh, around where Madison Square Garden is now, that's where the first international cricket match was played. People don't realize that. The first international cricket match was not at Lords; It was played in midtown Manhattan, when midtown Manhattan was still farmed right? But the St. George's Cricket Club, every Thanksgiving, they would play football. Now, what code did they play? Well, it was pre-1863, before the Football Association was formed. So what we call soccer, it's just association football soccer is just short for association football it's an english oxbridge term it's we didn't invent it don't blame us the sport's been played here for a long long time so if you look at the bigger picture and you realize that the first cosmos were really there in 1890 and so in 1970 when a club was given back and then in 1971 when the cosmos took to the pitch nobody knew that there was a cosmos back in the 1890s so i like to think that the cosmos are something that cannot die. That it's something that, you know, once in a lifetime, twice in a lifetime, thrice in a lifetime, maybe not even in our lifetimes, but I really believe ultimately New York deserves a top, top world-class football club. And that has to be the cosmos. So I remain optimistic uh, despite the current situation. Um, I really believe that soccer in America will get beyond the, uh, the current crisis that we're facing. Um, again, it's massive. There isn't a town in America that doesn't have a soccer pitch. Most American kids are playing the game, but they lose interest. If there is a top flight professional league, we'd have the crowds to compete, but we have to have the players to draw those crowds because otherwise we see better football played on Saturday morning, on TV, than we see Saturday evening at the local stadium. And that's what we had when I was a kid. We had the best players in the world on a, in that stadium on Saturday night.
0: I could talk all day, but thank you very much, David Kilpatrick.
1: Oh, Rich, thank you so much. Uh, I, I would gladly continue the conversation for hours and hours here. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, uh, I, I would too, but you know, it, I, I, Over hour long podcasts, it's going to tail off, mate. Let's be honest, it's going to tail off. But if if we talk that long, it's been
1: so much, it felt like just a a couple minutes. So, (laughs) So it's been a really fun conversation.
0: You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to SportsContentStrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at MrRichardClark.com.